Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic. Welcome back. Today, the scriptures are about the wisdom of Solomon and the kingdom of God. Here's the first reading from the first book of Kings, chapter 3. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask something of me, and I will give it to you. Solomon answered, O Lord my God, you have made me your servant king to succeed my father David. But I am a mere youth, not knowing at all how to act. I serve you in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a people so vast that it cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding heart to judge your people and to distinguish right from wrong, for who is able to govern this vast people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon made this request. So God said to him, Because you have asked for this, not a long life for yourself, nor for riches, nor for the life of your enemies, but for understanding, so that you may know what is right. I do as you requested. I give you a heart so wise and understanding that there has never been anyone like you up to now, and after you there will come no equal one to you. And so the wisdom of Solomon. Exactly how wise was Solomon? And why did Jesus say, my kingdom is not from this world? And then he talks about, in the gospel, why the kingdom is like a pearl of great price or a treasure hidden in a field. Just how wise was Solomon? This week on Oral Valley Catholic. The story of King Solomon is told in 1 King chapters 1 to 11, from how he became king until his death and his bones are laid to rest with his ancestors. And it's the story of a rapid rise to power, a very promising beginning, and then the kingdom just kind of implodes. And so by chapter 11, you can tell from the narrator that it's just a matter of days before Israel splits between Judah and Israel. You know, Judah and Israel were, for the most part of their history, separate kingdoms. Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. The story you and I take for granted of the 12 tribes coming out of Egypt, which are the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Atticus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are kind of an idealized version of Israel because they seem to spend most of their history and say the last 500 years of their existence fighting with each other. Um, the same kind of griping Stories that appear in, in the Torah are really carried out in the historical books, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Solomon is kind of a pivot point in all of that. And it's interesting that the first reading for this 17th Sunday of Ordinary Time is about Solomon's request for wisdom and how much that pleases God. But the interesting part is, is this dichotomy where Solomon knows what uh, wisdom is, but he doesn't live it. So in the first 11 chapters, it's the story of Solomon's great rise to uh, power and money and uh, you know a thousand wives and concubines, and also how he crashes and burns. And the Bible tells the story why, and it's a cautionary tale about wisdom that is not rooted in fear of God. 
Why do I say that? In the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last of the five books of the Torah, and this is when supposedly Moses and the 12 tribes are on the east bank of the Jordan. They haven't entered yet into the promised land. Moses will never get there. Um, but in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, Moses instructs the people about kings. It's kind of interesting, right? Because they won't have a king for uh, hundreds of years, several hundred years. King Saul would be the very first king, and of course, he was a disaster. But in Deuteronomy 17, here's what it says in verses 14 to 20 about a king. When you have come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, should you then decide, I will set a king over me like all the surrounding nations. You may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose, someone from among your own kindred. You may set over you as king. You may not set over you a foreigner who is no kin of yours, but he shall not have a great number of horses, nor shall he make his people go back again to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord said to you, do not go back that way again. Neither shall he have a great number of wives, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he accumulate a vast amount of silver and gold. When he is sitting upon his royal throne, he shall write a copy of this law upon a scroll from the one that is in the custody of the Levitical priest. It shall remain with him, and he shall read it as long as he lives, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to observe carefully all the words of this law and these statutes, so that he does not exalt himself over his kindred or turn aside from this commandment to the right or to the left, and so that he and his descendants may reign long in Israel. And so that's not part of the readings, but you can't understand Solomon's request for wisdom and how he fails unless you understand Deuteronomy 17. And so in those chapters, 1 to 11 of 1 Kings, that tell the story of Solomon's kingship, uh, where does he ever write this law down? Where does he keep this scroll in front of his eyes? When does he swear off the not money, sex, and power uh, so much as money, a thousand wives, and lots of horses, which is military power? And so it really is the uh, unholy triumvirate that brings him under money, sex, and power, which is exactly what Deuteronomy says he's not supposed to do. So Solomon's quest for wisdom, let's go through all of that and think about how he fails. So if you started first chapter of Kings, you'll have the story of how it is that Solomon is made king. His brother has trying to usurp power He's taken uh, his uh, father's. Um, he's taken his father's uh, throne and claimed it for his own. Had had himself anointed. God didn't appoint him, um, and of course it says in Deuteronomy 17, God will appoint the king. But Adonijah appoints himself and starts to gather around the leadership that'll oppose David. If you've read carefully Second uh, Samuel you'll know that David's kingdom ended with a huge civil war at the end when his son Absalom, another son that tried to seize power, declared civil war on him. And so uh, David and his general Joab made war on Absalom. 
And if you remember the story from the end of Second uh, Samuel, Absalom's riding on a mule, perhaps fleeing the battlefield, when his long hair catches in a terebinth, and the mule keeps going, and he's hanging between heaven and earth, and Joab goes and stabs him through with a spear. And this causes great agony to David, who's, uh, who's really, at the end of his reign, a rendered kind of impotent. He doesn't seem to be able to do anything. He can't even control Joab because he didn't want his son Absalom killed. And so at the end of 1 Samuel, uh, he is told by the prophet Nathan and by Bathsheba, if you remember Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and uh, it's an adulterous relationship David has had that he's now killed her husband and married her. And Solomon is the child of that illicit relationship. But Nathan comes and tells David that Adonijah, another son, has tried to seize power. And so he calls Bathsheba and he promises her that Solomon will be his heir. So he, uh, Nathan, is in the name of God has picked Solomon because that's the story. God picked Saul, Paul, God picked David, God picked uh, Solomon. Of course, Saul was a failure. David isn't much better. And so now we're on to the third king, Solomon. The Bible has a very tongue-in-cheek understanding of politics and kings, not a great supporter of it, which is part of the irony about the messianic promise that's made to David through the prophet Nathan. And remember, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Um, but it's a very different kind of Messiah than these, these uh, anointed kings. And Messiah comes from the word for anointing a king. So Solomon gets his dad's mule. He's uh, given uh, the throne, and, um, and then David dies. And so when David died, he had a concubine named uh, Abishag the Shunammite, which is not a catchy name, but that was her name. And so in the second chapter of uh, 1 Kings, uh, Solomon has installed his mom Bathsheba on a throne as the queen mother. Because you remember in the Old Testament, the queen is the mother, not the wife. Because these Old Testament kings had multiple wives, and so you, you couldn't make one queen and not the others. So mom was always the queen. And so in the second chapter of Samuel, um, remember it's the Adonijah, this other rebellious son of David, comes to Bathsheba and asks for a, uh, a gift from her. And she says, if I can give it, I will. And so the gift that Adonijah asks is if he can have Abishag the Shunammite as his concubine. And so he wants to lay with King David's concubine, which again is an attempt to seize the power of the throne. Absalom, I know this is deep into uh, Israelite and Judean politics, but this is what the other son did to him, Absalom. Uh, slept with his wives in open public because he's taken his dad's harem, which is a challenge to the uh, royal power. Money, sex, and powers, friends. You can't ever get away from it. But Solomon never does any of that stuff. He goes and gets his own girlfriends. Well, anyway, what happens to Adonijah, Adonijah is that Solomon uh, says, okay, he's trying to take King David's, uh, my dad's concubine, so now Adonijah must die. So Solomon kills Adonijah. So this is a pretty homicidal family, right? 
Uh, you don't want to be a son of King David. You don't want to get cross King Solomon if you're his brother or half-brother because they're going to whack you. Um, and so it's in the wake of all of this that Solomon asks uh, God for the gift of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Uh, because this is a mess, uh, and even the Bible gets why this is just a mess. And so uh, God gives Solomon uh, the promise that he'll have divine wisdom. And so it's the very next chapter after the reading, which is this reading from this Sunday about Solomon asking God for divine wisdom, is the famous story of uh, the two prostitutes that come and they're sharing a place. They each had children the same age. And uh, they both claim that one child died and that the surviving child is that they're the mother of the surviving child and they're fighting over who the real mother is of that child. And so they bring him to Solomon, the wise king who's going to decide. And if you remember that uh, Solomon makes the decision in the story, which I think is chapter four of First Kings, he says, bring me the child, bring me a sword, cut the child in half and give half to each of the mothers. And the real mother says, oh no, please don't do that to my son. Go ahead and give it to her that he might live. And the other woman says, no, cut him in half. We'll each take half. And so Solomon discerns wisely who the true mother is and gives the child back to the first mother. The Jewish joke goes that there's two mother-in-laws fighting over who the surviving son is son-in-law is because they both have daughters who are married to this guy and they're arguing over who is the uh, uh, the real wife of, of this man and so Solomon says bring me the son-in-law cut him in half and give half to each of, of, of these uh, wives these women who claim to be wives and the mother, one mother-in-law says, oh no, this isn't worth him. Let him live. Let the other woman have him. And then the other mother-in-law says, no, no, cut him in half and give him half to each, to each, uh, each wife. Solomon points to the one who wanted to cut him in half and says, you're the true mother-in-law. So there's the wisdom of Solomon, but that story is not in the Bible. That uh, probably ought to be. So um, what happens after this? Well, here's what happens after this in the, in the first 11 chapters, starting in about chapter 5. And it's really why Solomon's uh, kingdom falls apart. Through those next chapters, Solomon has money dumped on him by everybody. Everybody brings him gold. He marries 700 wives and, and takes 300 concubines. Why do you need 300 concubines if you have 700 wives? But that the idea of the story is, uh, you know, Solomon's wisdom, it seems to involve cutting kids in half. It doesn't seem to extend governance because when it comes to governance, he goes against Deuteronomy 17, which says, uh, don't accumulate gold and don't accumulate wives because he does both in abundance. And then it also goes on to talk about how many horses he has, uh, why the king should not have a standing army, and then how he makes gifts of horses and chariots to other kings. In one part of uh, First Kings, it says that he paid $600 to the Egyptians for a battle chariot. Remember, they were the ones that chased Moses out of the Holy Land. And he pays 150 shekels for a war horse. And then he turns and makes it a, a gift to, I think it's the Aramites, another king. Um, and so what happens in uh, those, as the Bible tells the story, 
is it that Solomon divides up Israel and Judah into 12 administrative districts, and he appoints his governor over every one of them. And so remember, under David and Saul, these were tribal governments. Now the central government in Jerusalem is seizing control of local politics. And that's what happens when the king has his own governor who's, who can collect taxes and also uh, levy duties of, uh, of uh, prescribed labor. And it says in 1 Kings that the king required all the Israelites and the Judahites to give him, I think, one month a year. I think that was it of a labor on his projects of building fortresses and the temple in Jerusalem, the first temple, Solomon's temple, which interestingly enough is uh, the source of really the dissolution of the united monarchy over Israel and Judah. Um, because what Solomon does when he builds the temple in Jerusalem is he quashes the priesthood of Shiloh and Bethel, these ancient shrines, where the Levites had their own high priests in these other temples that were up in the north. And then he empowers his own king. Uh, the history of the Israelite priesthood is very complicated, but some of the priests from the north had claimed that their lineage as priests had come from Moses. In Hebrew, the name for Moses is Mus. And so they're called Mushite priests because they are appointed by Moses. They're according to the line of Moses and Aaron, uh, which is an older priesthood. But uh, throughout Israel's history, right through the Maccabees and up to Jesus' time, it's the king that appoints priests. And so although if you go back to Deuteronomy, it's Moses and his brother Aaron is the first priest, and then it's Aaron's sons, Ahab and Nadab, and then after that, Phinehas, and on down through the line, the Mushite priests, which is not very clear in the scriptures, but it, it's a matter of some speculation. But it is very clear that in Solomon's time, some people claim that they had the priesthood by right, not because the king could appoint it. So what happens when a Judean king, one of the 12 tribes, decides to quash your neighborhood priest and tell you, you can't go and worship there anymore. You have to come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, the justification for it supposedly is that you don't fall into idol worship in all these other temples uh, that are erected throughout the land and these shrines. And that if you just come and worship in Jerusalem, then uh, we can protect the purity of the cult to Yahweh, who is the God of Judah and, and all the 10 tribes of Israel. Of course, that's not what happens. Uh, what happens in those first 11 chapters is that uh, as Solomon gets older, his wives, the Egyptians, the Edomites, pretty soon he has temples erected to all of these gods in Jerusalem. And that continues on till the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah are complaining about idol worship. And supposedly it all starts during this, quote, wise, end quote, kingship of, um, of Solomon. So why does Solomon fail? Well, here's a couple of things that come out of the scriptures. He levies taxes on everybody, but he spends it all in Judah. So imagine that Jimmy Carter, uh, who becomes president of the United States, has the power to levy taxes on all 50 states, but the money all gets spent in Georgia. 
this is the problem of, uh, of Solomon because he spends the money on his temple. He requires people in the north to come down to Jerusalem to work on his temple while he's squashing their temples. He's also requiring them to come down and they're building forts on the frontiers of Judah between Judah and Egypt, Judah and Moab, uh, Judah and all its enemies. But none of the money's getting spent in the north. So it's taxation without representation. Of course, it'll cause a great revolt in the American colony several thousand years later. Here's another thing he does. He takes 20 cities from northern Israel. Again, this is outside of Judah. And he trades them to the Phoenicians, modern-day Lebanon, in exchange for gold and cedar, which he uses on his temple in Jerusalem. So he's giving away the people and the territory of the, of the northern tribes. You can imagine why this ticks people off. The labor tax, you got to give him a month free. Uh, you, you don't get paid at all. Remember that the people have this great story of escaping slavery in Egypt. And so you're escaping slavery in Egypt to become Solomon's slave and the slave of one of his Egyptian wives. This is crazy. Um, then, of course, there's the taxation issue, which is the 12 districts I uh, removed to, because it's more than just taxation. It's Solomon taking direct control over all of these uh, tribes. And then here's the thing that kills him, and this comes out in chapter 11. When he squashes um, the shrine in Shiloh, he, uh, he unseats a priest who claims to be a Mushite priest named Abiathar, removes him as the northern high priest, and then he creates this other priesthood down in uh, Jerusalem. So Judah is taking over, and then in chapter 11, it talks about Ahijab, the Shilonite. Okay, so Abiathar is from Shiloh. So is the prophet Ahijab who talks to a workman, a leader, kind of like maybe a colonel in his army, named Jeroboam. And he meets Jeroboam on the road outside of Jerusalem. And Ahijab's wearing a cloak, which he, it's a brand new cloak, just like Israel under David is a brand new nation. So Ahijab is wearing a brand new cloak. He takes it off, he cuts it up into 12 pieces, and then to Jeroboam, he gives these 12 pieces to Jeroboam. Very prophetic act. And he says that Jeroboam is going to take away from Solomon his successor, successors um, 10 of these tribes. And uh, this is exactly what happens. It says in chapter 11, Solomon dies and is gathered to his ancestors. As he's dying, chapter 11 is telling the story of all of his enemies that are coming back into power. He's been very successful to him. But the problem of relying on, instead of on God's wisdom, and relying instead on foreign entanglements through all the marriages, because he's marrying the daughters of other kings to try to uh, create peace, doesn't work. Collecting money, because if he has enough wealth, he's going to be safe, doesn't work. Then horses, 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 because then he's going to have the most powerful army there in that little speed bump we call think of Israel and Judah. And that's all it is, is a little speed bump between the major powers of the world. He just doesn't have the base uh, to fight for his freedom, but he wants to rely on power just like the big boys. And it doesn't work because military power 
doesn't really solve problems. It just pushes them off to another day. And so Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam comes to the throne. And Rehoboam has two sets of advisors, old guys and young guys. Representatives of the 10 tribes from the north come and complain about how they've been treated by Solomon and they need some relief. And so he talks to the old guys and the old guys say, it's election season, promise them every, anything. Tell them it's gonna be a chicken in every pot. They're gonna have a Studebaker in their garage. Just tell them what they wanna hear and it's gonna be okay. The young guy said, no, they're testing you for weakness. These were his frat buddies from uh, Jerusalem U. And they're telling him they're testing you for weakness. You gotta show yourself stronger than your dad. Otherwise they'll, they'll just end up running the kingdom. And so what happens is Rehoboam goes and meets with the, the northern 10 tribes and says, uh, my thigh is thicker, my little finger is thicker than my uh, father's thigh. Actually, apparently in the Hebrew, it's a, a genital reference and I'll let you figure that one out. Um, because it is age old how men have seen wisdom and what manliness is. But it's not how God sees what manliness is or what it means to be a woman. Wisdom, not from this world. So how the story ends of Solomon is predictable. Um, the nation splits in half. A couple hundred years later, the Assyrians conquer the northern half. And a couple hundred years after that, the Babylonians conquer the southern half. Um, no wisdom. Isn't it interesting that that's the one gift Solomon asks for? But he doesn't pay attention to Deuteronomy 17 about money, uh, wives, and horses. And they're the very thing that undoes him as he tries to build this magnificent uh, structure that uh, we think of Solomon's uh, kingdom. Because it's the very reason the kingdom is ripped from the uh, grasp of uh, the descendants of David. You know, it's interesting, God promised that if he was wise, he would always be king of Israel and Judah. And he wasn't wise, and so God's promise came true. Uh, but God also said, no matter what, for the sake of my servant David, and boy, listening to David's story, you wonder why God loved David so much, because he could be a real shlemiel. But anyway, God does say to Solomon, I'll never take Judah away from David's house. And so, in it all, Judah is what survives. It's where we get the uh, word Judean, and Judean is where we get the word Jews. And I always like to think, boy, if you've ever met a Jew, you're meeting God's promise in, uh, uh, in, uh, in shoes, both feet on the earth. Um, the story of the Jewish people is an amazing story. Also, it's our story, because think about what happens when all these other gods about uh, seep into Israel and the destruction that follows. So let's go to the gospel and talk about Jesus' kingdom and why it's not from this world, um, but to the extent we uh, practice wisdom, perhaps some of the benefits of God's kingdom can be felt in this world. Let's talk about that right now. So here's the gospel from Matthew chapter 13. And remember, Matthew chapter 13 has all been about a sower came sowing seeds. And then there's a field, remember from last week, that had weeds and wheat growing up together. Uh, and then there is something about uh, the kingdom of heaven is like this net where there's all sorts of stuff in it. It's a mixed bag. And what you get is that not everybody will respond, um, that it'll be a mixed bag of good and evil, 
that in this world it's going to be like a mustard tree, a mustard shrub, and it's not going to look very, uh, really very exciting. But by the time it matures, it'll be this massive tree that the birds of the air will nest in. And so it's this very mixed understanding of God's kingdom and how we experience it in this world, because we can't experience it now in this world. And then Jesus concludes with this kind of the good news and the bad news about the kingdom. And here's what he says. Jesus said to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field which a person finds and hides again. Now to joy goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells it, sells all that he has and buys it. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, which collects fish of every kind. And when it's full, they haul it ashore and set it down to put what is good into buckets. What is bad, they throw away. Thus it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, and there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. And he ends chapter 13 with this. Do you understand all these things? They answered yes, and he replied. Then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings from his storeroom both the new and the old. So Jesus is laying some real wisdom on them. You know, the wisdom of Solomon. What does he have? Sex, money, and power. What do we have in our world? Well, we have a banking crisis. We're overwhelmed with poor, uh, with pornography, and uh, always competent, uh, constant warfare. The Ukrainian war, just the latest of constant wars in my life. You know, the secular worldview is that you can pull everything apart and understand it rationally. Uh, that's the scientific point of view, and we apply it in psychology and sociology and psychiatry. But you know, you don't get the big picture when you tear everything down into its little pieces. And that's why science is, has a hard time talking about human sin and human lust uh, when it just reduces it to chemicals. Religion, in some sense, is the mirror image of science. It doesn't break things down into discrete pieces. It gives a broader world view. It tries to look things on the whole our relationship with nature, our relationship with God in nature, I should say, our relationship within God, within ourselves, and in our love of neighbor, and then how it is that we should love others. Um, it's an integrated view of what it means to be a human being, what it means to find meaning and purpose. And if you remember, there's stories of wisdom in the Old Testament. There's the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who goes down and interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He gets beyond the factoids and understands the big threat of famine facing Egypt. There's the story of Daniel and Belteshar, who remembers, uh, who hears Belteshar's uh, vision of a, of a handwriting on the wall. And Daniel knows what the handwriting on the wall means. This is what wisdom is. How you take all the minutia, the the popcorn coming as constantly from social media and newspapers and understands it. And what's the scripture say that uh, wisdom really is? Wisdom begins in the fear of the Lord. That's Proverbs chapter nine, verses 10. And so when Solomon gives wisdom, what should be his first reading? How about Deuteronomy 17? 
and then writing it out and paying attention to it, giving it a run for its money. Where does he go if he decides that his, his kingdom is not based on money, a bunch of wives, and a bunch of horses, but instead on fidelity to God, being fair with the northern ten tribes and his own people, thinking about how it is he lives in nature and with his, with his neighbors. Uh, could have been a different outcome back in the Solomonic kingdom. Could be a different outcome today if our rumination started in fear of the Lord and a hope for divine wisdom. This has been Oro Valley Catholic. See you next week. <laughs>